My name is Ben Verhulst. I'm an elder here at City Reform Church, and this summer I am also working as an intern here. Uh, and one of the things I'm doing as an intern is, uh, is preaching. And we're going to be doing a series called Previews of the Christ, um, looking at what the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. Um, in our sacred reading this morning, Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ. And he doesn't mean there that we can look at Adam and say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. Um, but it, he means that we can look at Adam and see something about who Jesus is or what he is doing. Um, he gives us categories. Adam gives us a category for what Jesus is and what he does. And several, there are several characters, uh, several people in the Old Testament uh, who do that. And so we're going to be exploring some of those this summer. And our first uh, stop is Adam in Genesis 3. So let's, let's read our text this morning. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as our brother just prayed, we ask that you send your spirit. Um, let your word not be uh, words on a page or words hanging in the air, but let, them, uh, let your word speak to our hearts uh, that we may come to know you better. In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the best parts about preaching is that you get to tell stories and everyone has to listen. I have two sons, and my oldest is two and a half, so you probably understand my urge to talk about Calvin and Silas. As with most children, Calvin loves singing. We sing on drives in his high chair, at bedtime, and when he wakes up in the middle of the night. The song we sing him most often is Jesus Loves Me. He's gotten to the point that we'll often hear him singing it to his stuffed animals. And if we don't sing the second verse, we get reminded with, No, sing Jesus Loves Me, He Who Died. As parents, we couldn't be happier about that. We want it to be a foundational understanding for him that Jesus loves him. It was promised to him in his baptism, 
and he will grow up hearing it. Even long after he's done singing bedtime songs, we want that understanding to be rattling around in his head and his heart. As parents, it is our job to be thinking about the spiritual formation of our children. When we read the first chapters of Genesis, we see another picture of spiritual formation. God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them everything they need physically, but also spiritually. He gives them his Torah, commands about how to be the people he created them to be. He gives them positive commands to multiply and to rule the earth well. He tells them to care for the rest of his creatures, and he gives them instructions for how to do that. He's even present with them, walking in the garden to help them grow and flourish. But God also gives them negative commands, instructions on things to avoid. Actually, it's only one thing they need to avoid, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But despite the spiritual formation that God provides, Adam and Eve were left with a choice. God didn't create robots. He created human beings. And Adam and Eve used their glorious freedom to choose to reject God. I really enjoy the animated Bible stories put out by the Bible Project. In one of their videos, they depict Adam and Eve's sin as giving God the middle finger. And they got some feedback that that was really offensive. (laughs) But that's kind of the point, right? It's not the depiction that's the problem, it's the act that they're depicting that's so offensive. I think sometimes we miss why Adam and Eve's action was so offensive. In our discussions, it often gets framed as Adam and Eve breaking a rule God arbitrarily set. Like if I tell Calvin to get on his red socks, but he gets on his blue socks, do I really think he needs to be punished? I think it's important that we understand what's going on in this story. And I want to explore two related dynamics with you this morning. The first dynamic is the rejection of the created order. The created order is a theological term that just means the way that God created things to be. God created humans to be his image bearers, to be his regents in governing the world. God created humans to be the pinnacle of his creation, but they were still creatures. There's an enormous chasm between creator and creation, and humans are part of creation. We are not the creator, God is. As the creator, God is the one who has authority to tell us how the world is supposed to work. He tells us, for example, that humans are to rule over creation, but he also tells us that we are to rule as he rules for the flourishing of all. This means that we can neither worship creation nor exploit it. That is part of the created order, the way that God set up creation to function best. In our text this morning, humans reject the created order. Verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the key here. You will be like God. This is the serpent's temptation, its offer to us. You will no longer be God's image bearers. You will actually be on the same level as God. You will get to define good and evil for yourselves. If God says something you don't like, you get to decide whether or not to obey. You will be like God. The second dynamic is related, but it is a little bit different. It's the conflict between trust and suspicion. When we're confronted with something that we don't understand, we can respond with trust or suspicion. Several years ago, I was in charge of training new attorneys at the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. I needed to train one attorney in how to prepare for trials. So on Friday afternoon, I brought him a stack of 13 case files, and I told, it, told him that he needed to have them all prepped by 8 a.m. on Monday. When he and I discussed that a year or so later, he told me that he had hated me for that. As he spent his weekend going over these case files late into the night, he was furious. He viewed me with suspicion, thinking that I was trying to make him suffer unnecessarily, or that I simply didn't care about him at all. But many months later, he understood that by dumping a stack of files in his lap, I was actually helping him. I knew that once he was on his own, he would need to prepare between 10 and 20 cases for trial each Monday and each Wednesday. He didn't need to learn how to prepare a case for trial. He needed to learn how to prepare a dozen cases for trial. And even though that process was painful because of the amount of material he needed to prepare and summarize, it was helpful because he learned to focus on what was important and to ignore the extra information. Although what he wanted was an easier lesson about how to prepare one trial each day, that lesson wouldn't have helped him because it would not have prepared him for the real-world situations he would encounter. He started out with suspicion of me, believing that I was hurting him and not interested in his flourishing. But he learned to trust me because he saw that I actually had been preparing him for the situations he was going to encounter. This is the conflict we see in Genesis 3. Did God really say? The serpent asks. Then he sows distrust. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. The question Adam and Eve faced was this. Is God a good and loving God who cares about you? Is he really trying to protect you? Or is God holding out on you because he wants to protect himself and his position? Does God see you as a child or does he see you as a slave? Should we understand our relationship with God as a relationship built on love or on power and self-interest? Adam and Eve's answer was to understand God as selfish. They were quickly and easily convinced that God was holding out on them. 
All it took was one suggestion from the serpent, and they suddenly saw God's prohibition as a limit on their ability to flourish, rather than a protection of their well-being. Between these two dynamics, I hope it is becoming clear why these seven verses describe some of the worst blasphemy imaginable. Adam and Eve's action was simple. They took a piece of forbidden fruit. But in so doing, they hoisted the pirate flag. They declared that God was evil, that he was trying to constrain them, that he was holding out on them, that he didn't love them, and that they could do a better job as their own gods. It would be easy to jump immediately from here to application. These dynamics are as present in the world and in our lives as they are in Genesis 3. But when I was at Synod, uh, we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Wilson Cunha to be the, an Old Testament professor at the seminary. He laid out for us how the story of Israel mirrors the Garden of Eden. God took his people and placed them in a beautiful land that was richly blessed. And he gave them his Torah to instruct them in how to live. He provided everything they needed, physically and spiritually. But remember how Adam rebelled against God and was exiled from the garden? Israel did the same thing. They turned away from God, refused to trust him, and made other gods that they preferred. This is what we read in, Genesis, in 2 Kings 24 about the exile of Judah from the Promised Land. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Just like what happened to Adam. What Dr. Cunha wanted us to understand is that Scripture doesn't present these as isolated incidents. It's a consistent story. Adam's story is the same as Israel's story, and Israel's story is the same as our story. Like Adam and Eve, we reject God. We refuse to recognize his love for us. We see his commands as for our harm rather than our good. Adam's story reflects our own disobedience. And it would be easy to make this sermon about how we need to be more obedient than Adam. We need to trust God. We need to recognize God as God. And we need to follow God's commands. When I was a little boy, one of our common bedtime songs was Trust and Obey. I'm sure you know it. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's a wonderful song, and it's certainly true. The Christian life involves a significant amount of simple trust and faithful obedience. We simply can't walk with our Lord if we're unwilling to trust that he is in control and that he knows what is best. I want to be clear here and hopefully avoid some misunderstandings. I'm not suggesting that Christianity is about blind faith or irrationality. That's a common accusation of Christians that we've sometimes perpetuated. We've given the impression that Christians are people who just irrationally believe. And we believe the best about everything, even when we're proved wrong. That is not what I'm saying. 
I am not suggesting that we need to trust God without any evidence. That's why we do ourselves an immense disservice if we go from Genesis 3 to trust and obey. When Scripture reflects on Genesis 3, it doesn't see us in the garden. God doesn't tell us the story of Adam and instruct us to do better than he did. In our sacred reading, in Romans 5, Paul connects Genesis 3 with another story. This one from Mark 14. Let me read verses 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Paul takes us from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, another man is tested. Not you or I, but Jesus, the true man, the second Adam. This man faces a choice, too. To be obedient to God's will, or to follow through with his own will. And how much greater is his test? The first Adam faced a tree he could not eat from. The second Adam faced a tree upon which he would be crucified. The first Adam was tempted with the opportunity to define good and evil for himself. The second Adam was faced with the prospect of bearing the full weight of evil on himself. The first man's disobedience warranted the punishment of death, but the second man faced the punishment of death because of his obedience. This Jesus is the true Son of God, the incarnate God. But he is truly a human being as well. And his human nature is in complete terror at the death that awaits him. Even Jesus experiences doubt when he faces death. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And yet, at this moment of trial, when none of us could have the strength to proceed, the second Adam makes two affirmations where the first Adam made two denials. The first Adam rejected God as sovereign. In the Reformed tradition, we often talk about the sovereignty of God, meaning God's providential ordering of all things. But at a more basic level, it refers to God's rightful reign over all things, a king over his kingdom. This is what Adam rejected. By taking the fruit, he asserted that God's commands were not authoritative, that God doesn't have the right to tell us no. The second Adam, even though he is shaken to the core, refuses to follow the first Adam. Where the first Adam said, my will be done, the second Adam prays, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus will acknowledge the rightful reign of the Father even when the Father's will is the direct opposite of his own human will.
Jesus' second affirmation is perhaps even more surprising. The first Adam chose to see God as a tyrant, to see God as one who was holding him back from what was really best for him. The second Adam comes to God and says, Abba, Father. He knows that God's will is for him to be crucified, to die upon the cross and bear the weight of sin, evil, wrath, and abandonment. But he will not be shaken from the sure knowledge that God is his loving Father. Paul doesn't want us to miss Jesus. He doesn't say, Adam sinned, but you need to trust and obey. If we're struggling to trust our Creator, we don't need another reminder that we should trust God. We need a reminder of why we can trust God. So Paul takes us from Genesis 3 to Mark 14. Because the first Adam's transgression is not reversed by our faithfulness. The first Adam's transgression is reversed by the faithfulness of the second Adam. Christians still deal with fears and doubts that overwhelm us. Over and over, we're faced with the choice between trust and suspicion. The Philippians faced the same issue. They were a community in conflict. They knew they were supposed to get along, but they had so many reasons to doubt that God's commands were what was best. What if I submit and don't ultimately get my way? What if someone does something that hurts me or puts me in a bad situation? The Philippians didn't need a reminder to love each other. They needed a reason to do so. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul gives them. He told them this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You don't need to irrationally trust. You have the best reason to trust. God has given you, he has proven beyond any doubt that he loves you. Even when you don't understand, even when you're facing things too difficult for you, you know that God is on your side. He died for you. Brothers and sisters, this is the application that we need to take from Genesis 3. The first Adam was clothed in glory when God created him, and he stripped himself of that glory and had to make clothes out of leaves. But we do not need to keep making clothes for ourselves, metaphorically, of course, because the second Adam let himself be stripped naked by sinful men so that he could clothe us with glory again. The answer to Adam's disobedience and to our disobedience is not for us to do better so that we can earn God's favor. The answer is that God has already given us his favor. We don't come to God as though we're having a job interview. We don't have to show how much good you've done in the hope that God will accept you. He has already shown you that he loves you and accepts you. He descended into the tomb to bring you to himself. Paul's lesson for the Philippians demonstrates how we can deal with all of our fears and doubts. 
Maybe your issue isn't about your church community, like the Philippians. Maybe you're single and you're wondering, did God really say that I should have these purity standards that are so out of step with our culture? Is he just trying to prevent me from finding sexual fulfillment? Maybe you're married and you're wondering, does God really want me to keep demonstrating selfless love to my spouse even though they clearly don't deserve it? How is my marriage ever going to improve if I don't make demands and ultimatums? Maybe you're trying to survive financially and you're wondering, does God really want me to care about the well-being of my landlord who just takes my money and never fixes anything? Our political climate is particularly full of these questions. It's assumed that even showing decency will just encourage the other side to take advantage of you. Brothers and sisters, each of us have these kinds of fears and doubts. God's commands often seem out of touch in the world that we live in. Just like the serpent, our world is constantly telling us that it has the path to real fulfillment. If you want to be fulfilled, don't die to yourself. Put yourself first. If you want to find the best version of you, stop listening to God's word in the community of his people. Listen to your own feelings. If you don't feel fulfilled in your marriage, don't give even more of yourself. Perhaps you've just grown apart and need to move on. If you are financially successful, don't keep working so that you can give to those who have less. Save up, invest, and retire early. Our culture is constantly warning us against being sheep. But Jesus has shown us that he is the good shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he will lay down his life for them. We each face Adam's temptation, and God's will for us is to trust and obey him. He does know what is best, and he wants us to learn what that is. But if we go straight to trust and obey, we will fail. Over and over. Just like Adam, just like Israel. First, we need to go to the second Adam. We need to learn Jesus loves me before we learn trust and obey. You can trust God because he has shown you how much he loves you. He has shown you that he will go to any length for your good. He has shown you that he will face your test and he will take the punishment for your failure so that you can flourish in him. We may not understand why God's commands are so difficult to follow, but we can know that the one who gives us those commands is on our side. In the words of a beautiful hymn, see him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him, sinner will this not suffice. Jesus does not call you to your harm. It may seem that way from our limited perspective, but hear Jesus' words from John 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we can respond, the Lord is my shepherd. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much more than our daily bread. You have called us here to be part of your church, to feed on your body. Help us to understand in our hearts the kind of love that you have for us. 
because only then can we truly be your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray.